Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, when you look at history, there are a great many things that the church has been on the right side of history for. And also, there are a great many things where the church was on the wrong side of history for. And then, other times, there are cases where the church was simultaneously on the right side and on the wrong side of history. At the same time. At the same time. I guess that's what simultaneous means. (laughs) You used the right word. Thank you. I use more words to explain your one word. I appreciate it. That's what I'm here for. So that's been true always. But I feel like it's particularly true for the American church and American history because, you know, since its founding, America has been defined by at least a nominally Christian culture. And so it, it's always kind of baffling to look back and see how, like, how many people who, like, sincerely called themselves Christians, sincerely, like, loved Jesus and the Bible and their grandmother and paid their taxes and, you know, all those kinds of things, uh, arrived at stances and took actions that, to us, are now, like, so clearly transgressive. Yeah, and you had seen that a little bit more like fleshed out in a recent book you read, right? I mean, you're reading a lot of books right now. I'm a little envious of how many books you're reading. You just read way faster than I do. Yeah, so a couple months ago, I read this book by Christian historian Mark Knoll called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And it was it was really fascinating. And in that book, Knoll, he really explores... um how it could you know how could it be that a a nation that has a supermajority of not only christians but protestant christians so like in a very similar stream of tradition most people living in this nation how could it be that we were one of the last western nations to abolish the institution of slavery i think in the western hemisphere the only countries that were slower to abolish slavery were brazil and cuba, cuba. Yeah. And by the time we abolished slavery in 19 or not in 19, 1865 <laughs> is when the Civil War ended, I think. Um, it had already been abolished in uh, the United Kingdom in 1807 and then by the 1830s in all of the colonies. So uh, even the, the, the imperialist empire had abolished slavery everywhere you know it had control uh, 30 years before we did here in America. And so... Uh, Noel, he kind of explores like how that could be. And in the book, uh, the answer to that question, it, it really um, boils down to the fact that people on both sides, Christians on both sides, the pro-slavery people and the abolitionists, they were arguing from a theological perspective, but they were re- on both sides doing a really poor job of exegeting the Bible. And so as a result of that, it ended up taking the, the nation's bloodiest war to eventually settle the issue once and for all. And so I thought today it would be interesting to explore that story a little bit. And I want to do that for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's an important part of history to understand. It really give us a clear kind of sober picture of uh, what America being a Christian nation has looked like at its best and at its worst simultaneously in the same war. Uh, but also, uh, there's some themes in how people were arriving at their theological viewpoints uh, that I think are instructive for us as we critically evaluate 
what's shaping our own theological assumptions. Not so much the, the conclusions they arrived at, but how they got there, I think, is really instructive for us in um, navigating our own cultural and theological assumptions in our own time. Right, and that and how we might be taking those same approaches even to the ideas that we have now and seeing maybe some of their strengths, um, but unfortunately there was just a whole lot of shortcomings when you look at the way that the Bible was being used to support or not support um, the institution of slavery at, like, countrywide. Yeah. Right. So that is what we are going to dive into today, but we will start on that in just a a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So in his book, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, uh, Noel, he really argues that while the Civil War was, it was a physical war, obviously, uh, (laughs) it is recorded in history, but it ran alongside a theological war that was raging even before the shooting started and really in some ways kind of continued on after the shooting stopped. And so at the time, the overwhelming majority of Americans identified as Protestant Christians. So this was a war, you know, the Civil War, you know, it's been characterized as a war between brothers, a war between families. And that was true in the sense that these are all the same countrymen. A lot of them are connected through relationships. Um, But it's also true in the sense that, you know, these are brothers in Christ that are shooting at each other, uh, by and large, by the supermajority of them uh, being Protestant Christians. And so, uh, Noel, he notes that, that the war over... Uh, slavery, it was an intramural theological battle that was that was going on alongside this, you know, physical war that was happening. And um, so there were a lot of, you know, arguments that were published in um, the form of, you know, uh, newspapers and magazines and uh, or other correspondences that gave us kind of an idea of like how people were thinking through this. And they were constructing like these theological or, you know, quote unquote, biblical arguments for slavery uh, and theological arguments uh, for abolition. And many of those discussions um, here in America were actually pretty unique to America in that, you know, in in Europe and in other places, they were having a lot of other, you know, similar conversations about the institution of slavery. Um, But it was kind of a completely different tenor of conversation and none of them featured any kind of biblical justification for uh, chattel slavery uh, that that was just, you know, out of left field for them because they were living in a place where decades uh, prior the, the institution had been abolished where, where they were living. 
And so there's this kind of unique conversation happening in America that's, you know, going back and forth and back and forth. And uh, Noel, in his book, he he kind of points out that neither side of the debate is really giving a satisfying answer to the question uh, from a theological, biblical, exegetical perspective. Uh, we never get, you know, just a, a really good consensus on that before the start of the Civil War. And so the question was was posed in a theological way, but it was never really satisfyingly resolved in a theological way. And so one side never really won the other over. And so the question ended up being decided really by physical violence and force. And so at the end of it, the, the losers in the debate didn't necessarily uh, give up their belief in the theological justifications for slavery. Um, they were just forced to give up the institution, but a lot of the underlying theological assumptions remained, and so they just kind of had to move the goalposts, and that's kind of how we got Jim Crow when the Reconstruction era ended, you know, largely in failure. Uh, just a lot of those racist assumptions were never addressed, um, and those were the assumptions that uh, provided justification for slavery in the minds of people that really just simply reapplied those in the Jim Crow era. And so he really kind of points out it, it was this theological crisis where there was this kind of absence of robust theology that was widely known or accepted uh, in favor of abolition and uh, a, a failure to really address the underlying assumptions that were with that uh, that resulted, you know, not only in the Civil War, but in just the question not being resolved even after slavery was abolished. And part of that really uh, arose from the fact that um, American Christianity by nature is, it's fairly like anti-institutional. And, um, you know, America was one of the first, if not the first, uh, Western nation whose governmental structure was created to not have an established church. And that was a good thing because it was like this corrective to the religious persecution that had long thrived in Europe. Uh, wherever there was a Christian group in power that disagreed with Christians from a different tradition. And so, you know, we here on this podcast are very pro-religious liberty and non-established church. Um, but an, a side effect of that is that the religious culture in this nation that, that developed— was really one that was opposed to any kind of religious authority. And so the idea of receiving an inherited tradition or deferring to some kind of institutional religious authority or leadership, um, that all kind of gave way to the idea that any Christian with the Holy Spirit and a King James Bible uh, and the ability to read uh, could arrive at the right interpretation of the Bible without any help. And so in that context... The answers to theological questions that are uh, the simplest, the easiest to understand, the easiest to argue for, the easiest to point to uh, proof texts for, those are the ones that really kind of end up winning the day. So when we have this kind of democratization of theology, and then we also exist in a very capitalistic society, what ends up being the theological tradition that wins the day is really defined not so much by the greatest interpretation of things, uh, but really by market forces and uh, marketability of ideas. And so that's why on both the uh, abolitionist side and the pro-slavery side, we got some really poor theological argumentation uh, for um, one side or the other. 
Well, and that's the bit of the double-edged sword of what our country was founded on, right? Where we don't want a church institution that um, has this ultimate authority. And really you see that kind of like church is not the ultimate authority coming out of the Reformation. And we very much as Protestant Christians uh, believe and support everything that happened in the Reformation um, to a fault at some point. Because when you have no authority other than me sitting down by myself reading the word of God and coming up with an interpretation, uh, like the Bible is my authority, but the Bible is also your authority. And so the way that you're going to read it might be different from the way that I'm reading it. And if we have no kind of um, systems or accountability on how we're reading something, we can have the really the aftermath of some terrible exegesis happening to the point of a civil war, right? which is actually what we saw happen in our country. So there's the beauty of not being held to an actual institution that has so much authority that it is now uh, dictating everything you do within theology. Um, But on the other end, like we need to be accountable somehow or else like all hell breaks loose and we all just start doing whatever we want, which the irony of that is pretty funny to me um, where it's like, well, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Um, And we hate that the non-Christians say that, right? We hate that that's within our culture. Right. But we've been doing that since the 1860s. But we keep doing that in our own theology. Like, well, that's the way you read the Bible. I'm going to read it this way. And there's no ultimate authority in how we go to understand that. So here we are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The institutional religious authority is an interesting thing. Because like, let's, if you go right back to the Reformation, the institutional religious authority of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, it was formalizing and enforcing a system of theology that was antithetical to the gospel. And so that's why Martin Luther rebelled against the institution, and there was a bunch of other religious institutions that arose out of that in the different denominations that that followed. And so the institution can really enforce, you know, uniformity around something that is not uh, biblical, that is not uh, beneficial. Um, But then when you don't have any institutional authority over you, uh, there's nothing keeping you from going in a direction that you really shouldn't be going. And in the case of um, America, where we had no state institutional authority, um, there was no there was no authority that we could appeal to that could adjudicate the question for us. Uh, there was only the Bible, and everybody was reading the Bible in their own way, and so there was no religious tradition that that or authority that could say yes, here's the right answer, and here's the really nuanced, well crafted theological answer to that. It was just you know a bunch of like you know preachers and theologians just like duking it out and trying to adjudicate it themselves and it didn't go very well. Right, because at that point any kind of authority would have been the preachers and theologians and you had the preachers and theologians who were for slavery um, who were just continuing to preach that and say here's how the Bible shows you that. And then those who were against slavery were saying here's all the reasons why the Bible says it's not something we should be doing. But really, if you just get a mouthpiece within your own camp, then you're fine. 
Right. And that's exactly what happened. So we're going to talk about the uh, the theological argument that was for slavery uh, that was developed at this time. Yeah, and we'll dive into that in just a moment. So we're going to take a look at some of the arguments that pastors and theologians were making on either side of the abolitionist debate. Um, and we'll start with those who are advocating for slavery, in part because um, that argument was in many ways the the simplest. I mean, that's probably why so many people adopted it, because it was just, you know, if you were from the South and uh, you had this compelling economic reason to support the institution of slavery, um, and there was the presence of a really easy-to-understand argument to keep the status quo, bing, bang, boom, you have just right, like, widespread adoption. And the argument was pretty simple, and it is as follows. There is slavery in the Bible. And they're like, it's in the Bible, so it's in our nation. And that's that's pretty much it. So there was slavery in Israel, and God even you know gives commands in the Pentateuch, uh, the Levitical law, about how to regulate uh, that slavery. Paul, in the New Testament, he instructed uh, on at least two occasions uh, slaves to obey their masters. He also sent Onesimus back to Philemon in the letter of Philemon, um, who was a run- uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave. And so when you take that and you, then you just import some like unquestioned cultural assumptions, the argument for keeping slavery became really overwhelming for Southern American believers. Uh, and chief among those as- assumptions, uh, obviously, is that uh, Africans were inherently inferior to white people, which is absolutely wild. But to this point in history, you'd had at least a couple hundred years of the the slave trade in uh, North America uh, that was kind of rooted in that you know argument uh, that this became such a root assumption that so many people like didn't even realize that like that was something that we ought to question. It's like it would be like going over again what color the sky is. Like why are we like that's not a discussion that we need to have. It was just so in the DNA that that cultural assumption wasn't even questioned that you know Africans are an inferior race to white people that God created them providentially uh to be ruled, to be subjugated and um so if that's the case and you have slavery in the Bible and God providentially has blessed America as this Christian nation, as a new Israel of sorts to be his representative in the world. And this is the way that we're going to gain economic success is by living in quote unquote, God's created order of subjugating African bodies because they're inherently inferior. Then what's the argument against slavery? Like they're like, and so like that to them was like, you know, it's an open and shut case. You know, the Bible clearly says, and there was actually a lot of the Bible clearly says that slavery is something that we should maintain, that um, there was even actually this argument, because um, there's a lot of talk in the 19th century about providence, like God's providence. Um, when you viewed uh, America through this lens of like a new Israel, as so many people did uh, at that time, really on both sides, actually, um, that the... Uh, pro-slavery people saw the abolitionists as kind of going against God's providence in terms of like how he had created this society to be his representative in the world that you're trying to fundamentally change it, uh, that they were going against, you know, divine mandate. 
and and that that was what was leading them to war. That the war was actually God's judgment for them trying to upset the established order. And then on the other side, the abolitionists were like, well, yeah, I believe that this war is divine judgment, but it's divine judgment on the fact that you continue to uh, enslave uh, African Americans. And so just all that is kind of swirling around that um, either side was like so entrenched. But here on the, the pro-slavery side, it was like, hey, open and shut. Slavery is, is in the Bible. And therefore, what are we even talking about? And so I want to move on to the counter arguments for, uh, you know, the abolitionist movement that people were giving at that time. But before I get to that, I just wanted to ask you, like, the themes of what happened here, they seem to be really, like, relevant, even a century and a half later. So where do you see this similar type of mindset or this similar type of hermeneutic leading people to weird places today? I think... um there's a number of areas, but I think probably one area that is the largest right now is the role of women within the church and the role of women within ministry. Mm-hmm. Because funny, that was the same example that I was thinking of. Yeah, because it it basically says, well, here, look, the Bible has these specific verses that tell you uh, the woman should be silent. She shouldn't preach. She, you know, I think those are probably like the two main <laughs> areas. Yeah, First Corinthians, then yeah. Second Timothy, um, and because of that, the way that we uh, work with women in ministry, the kind of um, the kind of roles that we give them change and are massively changed simply because they're a woman, right? And that's this the same measure that was being taken when it came to the argument for slavery is just because you're African that means we're able to do these these things with you. Um, just because you're a woman, that means you're not allowed to be in these kinds of roles. Regardless of your abilities, regardless of um, your experience, regardless of anything that might give you some kind of merit to be in that place. Um, and obviously, I'm not comparing in any way the just absolute tragedy um, and... Honestly, like just making your stomach turn because of the indignity that was done to um, Africans who were being enslaved. Not comparing that and saying they're on the same level no, of but what's the, happening right, but with women. Is but the, the same. hermeneutic is the same. And in the same way that you had said, the culture wouldn't have even questioned the role of Africans within the society compared to the roles of uh, white people within a society. That was just the DNA that they were living in. It's the same thing for women in our like secular culture and within our Christian culture is like just look back at the way that women have been treated for centuries across the world, right? Um, we're only now beginning to see change in that and the holding of, well, we've always done it this way and why are we questioning it now? Um is kind of the same argument that was happening within the Civil War, is this is the way it's always been, and we have some verses to support it. And then people on the other side that say, well, it should have never been that way, and we have verses to support it. That's exactly the conversation that we're having now with the women, is sure, it's always been that way, but it shouldn't have been that way, and we need to change it, and here's our verses why. 
And then others who are saying, no, this is the divine order that God has created. And here are all the verses that I can share with you that prove my point. Yeah, and that isn't to say that there aren't um, a, a good, nuanced, theologically robust visions for a, a certain version of complementarianism. Um, but there is a not insignificant number of people who just hit you with two or three clobber verses and then use that to be not only like creating uh, a a system uh, within the church, but also just a, a whole entire ethic of subjugation that is absent from the New Testament. But you can paint a picture if you have um, some really bad cultural assumptions and then just a couple of proof texts that can kind of lend credence to the already ingrained cultural assumption yeah because you look at just women in general and a lot of the times you have some very conservative christians who think women should not be in the workforce at all they should only be at home raising children that is the divine order god intended for women to only be at home taking care of their kids they shouldn't be working in any other capacity they shouldn't be doing anything else um and so you have some who view, well, women just shouldn't preach or women just shouldn't be on the elder board. Like there's still, I guess, uh, understanding the text in some way, but the way in which they exercise the degree of that is uh, drastically different. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think some of the oddities of the more hyper complementarian view are uh beginning to be exposed as culture kind of shifts to a greater awareness of um, some underlying cultural assumptions that have not been equitable or dignifying to women. Um, and then as the culture moves, <laughs> you know, in a more equitable uh, direction, what was a cultural assumption has now become a theological assumption. And then it's yes. held on to with the, the level of vigor that you would, uh, something that, you know, God directly said. Yeah. And we have this idea of like, you know, the 1950s housewife is actually a God ordained role. And that's the only way that you should be operating as a wife, as a mother. Um, anything outside of that picture that American culture has actually created because that 1950s picture, like we see all of the television shows and, um, you know, there's a lot of ironic movies now that sh- depict that role of a woman. Um, if you see that 1950s housewife role in another part of the world, like it just doesn't play out the same way because the other parts of the world don't have the same privileges for a woman to be at home, you know, cooking and tending to the kids and, you know, making their own clothes. Uh, in other parts of the world, the women have to work as well. Um, and we see that obviously in America too, but to say the 1950s housewife is the the God-ordained, um, like, divine role of women um, is very much taking our culture and mixing it in with theology and making them one and the same. Yeah, and that's exactly what was happening on the pro-slavery side of things, where uh, the culture was shifting because people, you know, in America and around the world had long come to this understanding like, oh, wow, the way we dehumanized uh, black bodies uh, for the sake of profit uh, was, you know, inhumane. It was an atrocity. It was, it's just terrible. And there's no, there's no godly justification where there's no theological justification for it. But because it was so ingrained in the culture um, and you could find, a, you could cobble together a couple of proof texts, uh, people held on to it as though it were 
um, a religious right almost uh, in that sense. And we're thoroughly convinced that, you know, this is what the Bible says. And so there are people on the other side who are arguing, obviously, like, mm, that, that, that doesn't line up. Uh, but uh, the, on the abolitionist side, the theological arguments, um, a lot of them were really underdeveloped. Like, they were, uh, they were really, really fully robust and developed abolitionist, uh, you know, theological visions. But they took a lot to explain, and they were nuanced and things like that. So the really simple ones were the ones that really won the day. And the, the one that is like the, the line of reasoning that's the simplest to understand, it was, it was really not, not a great line of reasoning. You know what I mean? And so uh, the, the, the theological argument on the abolitionist side that was really kind of uh, popular um, for, for a great part of this conversation um, was that, you know, yeah, the Bible seems to give a pass to slavery. Yeah, we see slavery in the Bible. Um, you know, we see Paul commanding slaves to obey their masters and things like that. But when we look at slavery, like it just doesn't like it doesn't feel Christian, right? Like because we're supposed to be loving people and these are people that we're treating like property. And so that doesn't feel right. So I don't have like a verse or I don't have like a a a biblical justification. Um but I just I could I can just arrive at the conclusion that Morally, slavery is wrong. And so, yeah, we can take the spirit of Jesus' love, and then when it comes to the parts of the Bible that uh, talk about slavery, you know what? Just don't look at those verses and look at the rest of the Bible. And so, as you might imagine, that argument like did not go over well with the pro-slavery people. Right. Because they're like, so you're telling me that you're just going to ignore entire sections of the Bible and not deal with them at all because it doesn't, you know, quote unquote, feel Christian to you. And so they like latch onto that. I would never let them forget. And so in this weird, bizarro world, this, the pro-slavery people uh, not only saw themselves as the defenders of slavery, they saw themselves as the defenders of the Bible. Right. Because of this because really poor the, argumentation. Yeah, because the other side wasn't doing the work of actually resolving the question of, when we see these verses um, show up in scripture where Paul is, you know, sending a runaway uh, slave back, like what do we actually do with those? And then we're just going to ignore them and focus on all of the other areas that seem to contradict this treatment of humans. Um, and it's really unfortunate because if they would have just dealt with those verses and like clearly understood what was happening there, they would have had a pretty solid argument in return. And there were really solid arguments. Um, but you kind of have yeah. to be smart and, you know, well, have concentration and be willing to sit there through just this entire vision that reconciles all of these seemingly contradictory or disjointed uh, aspects of scripture into a cohesive vision for abolition. But, um, yeah, like it wasn't the masses easy, don't have the patience for that. No, and it wasn't an easy tagline, and it wasn't an easy like one sentence. So you had to kind of backtrack a bit to to really develop out what was happening, and it it takes people genuinely wanting to understand and not just have their stance and ask you where does the Bible meet me um, in support of what I already believe. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's just. I mean, that's just humanity, that's right? Just the way yeah. the way it goes. And so really that's why Noel has said that the Civil War was a theological crisis as much as it was, you know, a military crisis. 
uh, constitutional crisis. Um, because no one was really taking the Bible seriously. They sincerely believed the Bible, but they weren't interpreting it very seriously. And so they were just kind of starting with the conclusion that they wanted. And then they were finding a way to wrap theology around that. Uh, but there were some good nuanced arguments at the time that were being set forth. Obviously, they existed uh, and exist because, you know, <laughs> it's, slavery has been abolished everywhere. And for a good reason, both just from if you look at it, you don't even need the Bible to know that abolishing slavery is a good thing because, you know, if you have just a sense of justice in, in your heart. But then also when you look to the Bible, it's there, too. Um, so there were obviously more nuanced arguments, but before we get to those, I wanted to to ask you this: like, how do we see on the flip side this idea of someone arguing for something that is good, but using really terrible theology to get there? Like, you came to the right answer, but you used the wrong formula, and therefore that's undermining the credibility of the right answer that you came up with. Yeah, I think one of the biggest topics right now in our time is the uh, conversation around like transgender. Uh, communities and laws being passed around that you have people that are arriving at the right conclusion but then when you you see okay how did you actually get there they're kind of answering it with well like it's just wrong this is just not how god created you um instead of actually fleshing that out and saying like what is deeper within this conversation um that isn't just uh it shouldn't be that way and that's the end of our argument. I think that's probably one of the biggest topics right now. There, there, Christians, many Christians are arriving at the right conclusion of, um, no, this is not the way that God intended our society to operate, and it actually is um, going against what we see within Scripture. Um, but how do we have that conversation in a way that isn't just offensive um, and berating and? Um, hostile because we're arriving at the right conclusion but the way that we're getting there is all wrong yeah or yeah you're arriving at the right conclusion or but the way you're enacting that conclusion in many ways is is all wrong because it's not informed by a robust yeah yeah that's true it's not informed by a robust uh, theology of identity of uh just the way that Even, God of, of creation of the vision that God has for us, it's really kind of rooted in, um, for lack of better phrase, like, in like homophobia. Yes. But then, like, you somehow arrived at the proper understanding of God's vision for uh, gender and sex and marriage. Um, but the way you got there was kind of atrocious. Yeah. And even understanding the beauty of uh, the differences of genders that God has created uh, and not even just taking that 1950s housewife role and saying like, this is what it is to be a woman and this is what it is to be a man. But actually um, when God created Adam and Eve, he talked about them like working together in such a way that showed the whole of his, uh, like the whole of his creation Um, and not, not strictly speaking within uh, marriage, right? But within the operating world and the way that society is supposed to go, God created man and woman to fulfill aspects of uh, the goodness of his creation that can only truly be carried out when man and woman exist within the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're we're instead just saying, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And you're right. It is coming from this... Um, yeah, it's a lot of 
uh, homophobic language that's being used and um, it, it might be the, the right conclusion, but everything else surrounding it is, um, is counter to the gospel. Yeah, in the really. lead up and then into the application of. Yes, yes. Yeah, like how you got there and then what you do with it, like on either end of that. Right. Is like really just devoid of rich gospel theology. Yeah, and that's where you have people on the other side who are like, well, that's just not loving, right? Like that's not what Jesus wants us to do. Right, because, because you can sense that in yourself. Yes. Like, hmm. Like, there's like, still I, dignity yeah. within humanity, right? That we have to uphold. There's still value within human lives, even if you don't agree with the way that they're exercising things. Yeah. Um, and so to be against it and to be nasty with people, like that's not what Jesus wants either. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That, there's, that's, there's a, I think that's the first uh, topic in our culture today that I can see. Yeah, I think there's a sense oftentimes where you can see something playing out uh, in culture and you can have this sense you're like, "Mm, I don't have a Bible verse for that yet, um, but that definitely doesn't feel like Jesus to me. And a lot of the times with the pro-abolitionist movement prior to the Civil War, that's kind of where they stopped. And that's a really bad place to stop. But there were others that went further into creating this robust, nuanced uh, vision for that. And so there were people who wanted to take the Bible seriously, but also knew that chattel slavery was evil. And so they wanted to take a look at um, not only the fact that slavery is in the Bible, but how it's portrayed in the Bible. Like what light is is it put in? I mean, after all, like the Old Testament seemed to give a pass to uh, the patriarchs of Israel for being polygamist, but there's no one really seriously arguing if we, that if we take the Bible literally, that that's the vision for, for marriage. Um, and so when these theologians looked at the Old Testament law surrounding uh, slavery in Israel, uh, the overwhelming theme, if you look at them, uh, those laws are giving rights and protections to those who are in servitude and they're giving them a level of rights and protections that they would experience nowhere else in the ancient world. And so, uh, in other words, even though like slavery was an unquestioned reality of the entire ancient world, uh, when God created the nation of Israel and he gave them uh, laws to frame their society, he said this is like the only place on earth at that time where... Slaves and servants weren't treated as property, but they were treated as people. They had the reasonable expectation that they would be released at some point. Um, And they also had, while they were in servitude, they had legal protections and rights. And so even from the most primitive stages of God building a nation from which the Messiah would be born, God is already starting to move his people uh, towards the direction of greater justice. And then when you get to the New Testament— and you see the way that Paul talks about uh, folks who were involved in the, the Roman slave system, which was like horribly brutal. Uh, the way he speaks about it is that he really instructs the church to take all the brutality out of it. And so he instruct, yeah, he does instruct the slaves to obey their masters, but he also says that the slave and the free are equal in Christ Jesus. Like, there is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no male or female. All of those hierarchical things that are part of Roman society, those distinctions of authority and uh, domination and subjugation are abolished in Christ Jesus. And so the church obviously did not have the power uh, to 
abolish slavery in the Roman Empire, right? Like it was it was an empire. It's not a representative democracy like we live in right now. And so Paul never says like we're going to abolish slavery because that there was just no concept of you know the democratic system in this imperialist, you know, empire. And so he doesn't speak to that, but what he does do is says, okay, here's the here's the broken society in which we live. Let's take all the brutality out of that. In a society where it said that, you know, women should obey their husbands, Paul said, husbands, you should love your wife. When it's in a system where this patriarchal system where it says children have to unquestionably obey their fathers, Paul said, fathers, don't exacerbate your children. And so everybody was seen as having a dignified role within the pre-existing system, but then it took all the oppression out of that because when the people came into the church— Again, there's there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male, there's no female, there's no Jew, there's no Greek. All are one in Christ Jesus. And so inside the church and like outside sources at the time, contemporary sources, would note that how weird it was that these uh that all these just this weird collection of people would meet in private homes and they would all like just treat each other like family regardless of their their stage or their station in in life and so all of the uh brutality was meant to be taken out of that and in many cases it was in in the first uh century church and then when you look to american chattel slavery it in many ways was worse than uh the roman slave system in that it was right down the line of of a racial difference that it we that if you were black, you were less, and you should be a slave. And if you're white, then you shouldn't be a slave, and, and you should probably own slaves if you can afford them. And um, in that sense, it was even more brutal than the Roman slave system. And there are entire books of the New Testament uh, that were framed around these kinds of questions, like the book of or the, the letter uh, to the Romans and the letter to the Galatians. Uh, Paul writes in large part to specifically address the racial animosity that existed between the Jewish believers and the non-Jewish believers. And so the idea of creating a, a, a system that is brutal when we live in, a, in a, a representative democracy and we can actually have the power to create a system that is not oppressive, uh, that we would still create that oppressive system, that that system would be horribly brutal and full of crime and inhumanity uh, against black bodies, and that it would also be along this racial line, which is anathema to everything in the early church. It's just, the, the whole thing is just, uh, ap- as you might imagine, just absolutely no godly justification for this mm. system of yeah. slavery. And so when you take the whole weight from the earliest... Uh, Old Testament scriptures all the way through and you see the vision that God is creating for the church and if every, you know the super majority of us in this country are claiming to be ambassadors of that heavenly kingdom it makes zero zero sense when we can amend our constitution to remove this that we wouldn't do it and so to hopefully nobody's surprise we have come around <laughs> to the official stance of uh Kindness Project when it comes to chattel slavery. I know people have been asking a lot, like, what is your stance on chattel slavery? Because that's an issue of debate. Yes, of course. <laughs> and our stance is, obviously, that it was an unmitigated evil 
the effects of which still are unfortunately felt in our society today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because chattel slavery gave way to Jim Crow and racial discrimination and the white supremacy that has endured in many times and in many ways uh, in our nation. And so the the, the fight that began uh, both theologically and through, you know, a physical war and legislation that followed, you know, that fight is, is not over. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, justice, human rights, equity and equality, I think what we have to realize is that that fight starts and is waged at the intersection of our unquestioned cultural assumptions and the truth of, of Scripture. And so wherever we are going to address issues that we know, like I said, a lot of times you don't need a Bible verse to feel when something is unjust. Right. Um, yeah. But how do we pick apart the cultural assumptions and have a very faithful interpretation of Scripture to provide a compelling vision for that justice? I mean, that's, that's where the, the battle is, is fought and won. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Feeling stressed? Let's take better care of you. I'm Bonnie Gray, the host of Breathe, the Stress Less Podcast. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.